Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 88th episode of our podcast, I interviewed Sar Yaskovitz, co-founder and CEO at Augury. Sar is an entrepreneur with a deep level of experience in building hardware and software products. His current company, Augury, is one of those companies that makes you go wow when you hear what they do. Their technology automatically diagnoses machines based on the sounds that they make. It's kind of like a Shazam for machines and medical diagnostics. They do this by connecting vibration and ultrasonic sensors to smartphones and pairing them with machine learning algorithms. The company just raised a $25 million Series C round of funding this past January, and they have raised over $50 million to date. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Sar's background growing up in Israel and his experience working at Intel, the story behind Augury and the aha moment that led to its founding, a deep dive into the world of machine diagnostics, how Augury got its first early adopter customers, SARS experience with raising capital and what the fundraising process was like, advice for building hardware, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. Every Monday on VentureFizz, we publish the New York edition of Town on the Move. It is a weekly roll-up of people making job changes across the New York tech scene. If you're interested in having any of your recent hires featured, all you have to do is send us an email with the individual's updated LinkedIn profile. You can send submissions to info at VentureFizz.com. We accept submissions across all levels of experience and functional areas within the company. Our only request is that the person is based in or around New York City. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Sar. Sar, thanks so much for joining us today. No, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, we have a lot to talk about in terms of Augury and the great company that you're building. So, uh, But let's start off from the beginning. Where did you grow up and what were you like as a kid? I will need to ask my mom that. But um, <laughs> I, grew, I grew up in Israel, um, originally from there. Um, I actually spent five years in a kibbutz. Uh, I don't know if you know that it's like a a commune of people that kind of live together and everybody does what they can and gets what they need okay. um, from the organization. So I grew up there. I think it really shaped a lot of kind of the values that drive me and also are seen here at Augury today. Um, I was I did spend three years in the U.S. Um, for my dad's work when I was at uh, second to fifth grade and. That was my first introduction to technology. So I had uh, my first computer in second grade. And from there... I'm always fascinated with first computers. uh, It was a Packard Bell 286. Wow, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I was hooked uh, from then on. Uh, And and growing up, I started dissecting computers and fixing computers for, for, for payment, for money, for other people. Uh, and and it was very obvious that that is kind of the path for me going forward. And, and did you kind of already, like when you got, you kind of lifted the hood off of a computer, you could just like see it and be like totally immersed and figure out how everything operated? Yes. Yeah. Uh, at some point I even took a, a, a uh, course. I, w- I was certified as a Microsoft technician when, I don't know, when I was like 13 or 14. Uh, so I, I dove really deep, deep into that. And that's why I always ask the question, like, you know, what were you like as a child? Because, you know, your background in terms of what you're doing now, it, it plays off of each other. Exactly. Exactly. So did you, and did you just continue studying um, 
electrical engineering or computer science or mechanical engineering? Yeah. So, so I, I started programming when I was right around like 13, 14. And then when it was time to go to university in, the, in Israel, we also have the army kind of uh, three years. I did four years because I was an officer. Uh, and then when it was time for university, I knew that it was going to be around technology. Um, I ended up uh, majoring in, in, in uh, electrical engineering and physics. So it's a dual bachelor degree um, in, in the Technion, uh, which is the, the te- technology kind of focused university in Israel. Got it. Now, the, the, the military experience that you're required to do, like, what do you think that taught you as found as more that foundational and, and maybe, you know, becoming a you know, founder and leading your own company? I think it is truly transformational. Um, I went from being a geek or nerd um, back then um, to being in charge of a platoon of 100 people when I was 20. Um, and that you know, this throw you into it. Um, and, you know, even today at Augury, I don't know, 10 years later, almost 20 years later, sorry, um, we don't even, ha- we don't have 110 people yet. So when I was 20 people, I was managing and leading a larger group uh, than, than we have today. And it builds, it builds a strong foundation. And then at what point did you come over to the U.S.? Or like, like I guess, you know, what was your first, you know, jobs out of school? When I was in the in the Technion University, I started working at, at Intel. Uh, so I spent six years in their CPU division. Uh, I was an analog architect there. And when I finished school, I knew that I'm going to start my own company uh, in a couple of years. Uh, I also knew uh, my co-founder, Gal, back then, and I knew that it was going to be with him. Uh, so we had this really planned out. And I asked a lot of smart people, what should be my next step? Should I stay to do my PhD or master's degree, right? That's one option. Should I uh, continue at Intel or, or another large company? Um, or should I go to a startup, right? Drop everything, just go to a startup. And surprisingly, they all said the same things, which is you should stay at Intel to really understand what a large, successful company looks like from the inside, mm-hmm. right? And build this kind of strong foundation, understand what the... Uh, importance of culture and values, uh, and also what not to do, uh, what inhibits kind of those large organizations from moving quickly and keep disrupting the market. Uh, and it was an amazing school for me. And within uh, a year after that uh, conversation, uh, I already said I had enough, I've learned enough, it's time to go and do our own thing. But until, so what were you working on? Like what's, what is an analog architect do? So you look at your CPU, the main processor in the computer, um, it interacts with the memory, right? The onboard memory, uh, DDR memory, and it interacts with the uh, graphic cards through PCI protocols. Uh, And I was kind of at that gray area between the digital side, which is the main computer, and the analog side, which is the kind of the information bus that transform all the information to the memory into the uh, graphics cards. So I, I was sitting there. I think it's the most interesting part, honestly, of the of that whole machine. Because um, it's where theory and kind of the digital is very clean. It's programming and it's very clean. And real life is very messy. And you need to bridge that. So you have a lot of noise in the real life. 
and it needs to be clean and pure on the digital side. Uh, so it was a, a really, really good uh, and interesting uh, place for me for four years. And what, what did Intel actually teach you? What do you think you took away from that experience? So at Intel, their cycle is five years. Product cycle is five years. Uh, they actually are much better now, but at, at those days, uh, that's what it was. And I had the opportunity, and it's more luck than anything. Uh, was perfect timing. I came in right at the end of the tail end of, of a project, um, and I was able to kind of walk the journey from uh, kind of research and understanding what you want to do in a new project through the design implementation, then kind of the, the first chips came from the manufacturing into the lab and running those tests. And, you know, Augury is a hardware startup as well. We have hardware and understanding the different stages of a product life cycle. How do you need to plan for it? How do you need to build for it? What can go wrong and how to react when things go wrong was instrumental for, for me and, and for us to, to really build uh, the first early stages of the company. And that's from a practical perspective from kind of a more philosophical uh, state, understanding the, the importance of culture and what is really needed to grow a team to tens of thousands of people at the end of the day. And, and that is the goal, right? Um, so that, that was uh, a really good school for me as I said earlier. Yeah, definitely. Good, good foundational years. And then, so let's fast forward to what you're doing today. So what is Augury? So Augury today works to build a world where people can rely on the machines that matter. And when you think about it, everything we do in our, in our lives relies on machines, from uh, electricity to running water to the medicine that keeps us and our children safe. All of that is maintained or manufactured by machines. And today we're working with the world's largest manufacturers, Fortune 500 companies in the uh, food, beverage, pharmaceutical, uh, CPG, consumer packaged goods, to help them make their facilities more reliable and productive. And uh, the way that we do it is that we have a, a full stack approach. So we have sensors that we design and build uh, in-house uh, through connect, connecting them in a secure manner, managing that connectivity, as well as running the analytics and, and diagnosing the health of the machines. And so we, we do all of that uh, in the company. So, so how did you actually come up with the idea? Like, what was the aha moment that you're like, you know, this is something that uh, we can build a company around? So back in the day at the Technion, I, I focused on speech recognition. Right? And when you think about it, I, I didn't mention, but we basically listen to the machines and based on the noise that they make, we can tell you what's wrong with them. Right? That's what we do today. And it's very similar to speech recognition. You take audio and you try to find meaning inside of it. And so the, the core technology came from, from my studies. At the time, my co-founder, Gal, who is now the CTO, um, he was working at a medical device startup and they had this big machine with a lot of moving parts inside of it. And he, he was sent to a customer uh, location to understand why the machine isn't working. And he was the head of software there. And, you know, when he entered the room, he could hear that something is off, right? That the fan is all clogged up. As a software developer, he found himself uh, washing the filter and that fixed the problem, right? <laughs> so when he came back home, he, he knew I was into audio, uh, kind of uh, signal processing and audio analysis. 
And he said, look, I could hear something is wrong. Why can't my computer code understand something is wrong? And then we started looking into machine diagnostics, machine health diagnostics based on acoustics. Um, first thing we did is went to a factory to understand what's going on today. Uh, and, you know, you come in, you think you're a genius, you, you search Google for acoustic diagnostics, you can't find, you know, zero results. Um, and then you go to talk to a real customer and they say, oh, yeah, we've, it's called predictive maintenance, regression analysis. We've been doing it for 30 years now. And, you know, you have the, you said, aha moment to us. It's the oh shit moment. Um, when it's like, oh, so what are we actually going to do now? And we started to really dive deeper into the market understanding what the gaps are. And turns out that they're using the same technology from the 80s, even today. And there is a huge opportunity to bring in the internet age, smartphone age technologies um, into this traditional market. So uh, can you share like a customer example and like, like what type of machine is it? And how does it actually you know, work? I mean, you gave an example of kind of conceptually how it works, but like, it just seems like really fascinating that um, you, know, you could potentially use your phone to diagnose how this heavy piece of machinery is broken. Yeah, so, so the best example, you know, when you drive your car, you can sometimes hear uh, the fan belt is squeaking, right? And you know that it, you need to replace the fan belt. Now, it doesn't matter if you're driving a Mercedes or a Toyota, a fan belt always sounds the same. Right? So, so different malfunctions have very unique patterns that we learn how to recognize as people, as humans, right? And our goal is to replicate that, Right. So the first thing we did, we, we set up to build this malfunction dictionary. Today we have uh, close to 100,000 machines um, in our database. Um, and that means that we've seen tens of thousands of malfunctions. And when we go to your I know, pump or fan, we can compare it to the 20,000 other pumps we have. Right? And we can tell you specifically what it is. You need to uh, replace the bearing next month, or you have cracked water bars and you need to fix the motor in, I don't know, in a quarter or two, right? So, so that's how we, we do. We have one example with a large brewery, one of the larger beer manufacturers, where we were on the most critical machine in the facility, the machine that fills the cans with beer, right? We all love beer, so it, it's our mission here. Right. Um, and we were able to detect severe bearing wear on that machine, on that motor, now, the facility is run 24-7, right? They have zero tolerance for downtime that is, that is not planned. So every couple of months, they shut down the line to do all the preventive maintenance, all the scheduled maintenance tasks. And because we were able to alert them ahead of time, they fixed it in that allotted uh, downtime, planned downtime, right? Now, had they not known about it, it would have caused them to lose a whole shift of manufacturing. And that translates to a million cans of beer. Right. And for the person on the front of the line, right, his name is Bill, he can't afford to lose a million cans. It affects not only his own production line, it affects the warehouse, it affects the supply chain. It may even also get to the retailer at the end of the of the chain, right? So for them the to be able to predict machine health and plan better and increase their productivity and yield really unlocks um different business models, different way of, of running the, the company and, and the operations of the company to move to a more, much more modern digitized version of operations. 
so uh, how often should companies, uh, you know, be monitoring these machines? Um, you know, obviously you want to be preventative versus reactive of, in fixing a disaster. So what's the best practice there? So that's, that's a really good question. Um, it used to be not too long ago because the tools were handheld vibration tablets that cost $20,000 um, that you would only record a machine twice a year, maybe every quarter at best. Okay. But today, because you know we have these three megatrends in technology, one of them is um, low power sensors, right? So whatever you have in your smartphone, today we use in our, in our, in our own sensors that we put on the machines, right? We have the whole IoT, the Internet of Things, the connectivity is becoming more ubiquitous. And then the third is AI or machine learning or artificial intelligence that can sift through all the data and find meaning. So we're transitioning from a kind of route-based solution to an online continuous diagnostic solution. Right? So, so at Augury, we developed sensors that are battery powered. You just go and put them on the machine. You don't need to even open it up or, or stop it from, uh, from running. You put the sensor on the, on the machine, scan them with a QR code, you're connected, and, and now you have full-blown 24-7 uh, diagnostics and monitoring on it. Yeah, and that, that's going to save companies so much money by ha having that data, knowing that machines are working well, and again, you know, not having that million-dollar, I mean, the, the million-can disaster down the exactly. road. Yeah, so every facility we go into, and this is across the board, we find that roughly 30% of machines need some kind of attention or repair. Mm -hmm. That is a staggering statistic. Um, and we see it everywhere in the best run facilities and in, in the worst one, it's even worse. Um, but our goal is to take them from that 30 to 40% in, uh, in danger to 0% in danger. Mm -hmm. And then you can really rethink how you do things, right? So why do we keep so many spare parts? Because machines fail unexpectedly. Right? Why do we have so much preventive maintenance and, um, and put so much time and, and money into it because machines fail unexpectedly? Mm -hmm. Now, if you can only stop that and provide visibility and, trans and transparency into the health of the machines, it can really change uh, the organization. You can move to just-in-time manufacturing, right, which is where they're going. Uh, the market is going to. Um, there is another kind of core initiative that's called lights out manufacturing and it's lights out because there are no kind of people that are needed to run the, the line but you can't really get there unless a machine tells you that it's going to break down and you need to replace or repair it right so what, what advice would you give to other founders like you're you're building out uh, a new way of doing things and sometimes early adopter customers are kind of you know, we've been doing this for 30 years already and we have our set way of doing things and you know this you know more IOT connected device route doesn't seem like a fit for us so how, how are you able to get early adopter customers to believe in what you're doing first of all you need to understand and be very clear on, on your vision and where you're going and where the market is heading right so you need to really educate your customers find the early adapters that can connect to that story uh, that want to be a part of that journey. And then they will work with you and they will probably pay, they would pay you less in money and more in kind of time and, 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 and their creative ability to help you solve challenges. Uh, so once you get your customer to really buy into your mission, um, then th that's gold. That is everything. 
Um, but, but for that, you really need to find the right customers. The, the first five customers are key. Um, and those are people that are early adopters, not only in, in their work life, but also at home, right? They probably have the latest smartphone. They probably have all the IoT gadgets and whatnot. And the, the other thing, I, I watched um, a video where you were presenting uh, your company and you, you talked about um, you know, wanting to prove the market before actually going to raise capital. So you know, some entrepreneurs may argue that that's, you, know, you need to raise capital so you can keep the company going to support the actual mm-hmm. points. Uh, Why did you decide to do it the way that you chose? So we started Augury seven and a half years ago, uh, roughly. And back in the day, there was a very niche movement in the startup community called customer development that started to become what is now known as the lean startup. Um, And to us, it just made sense, right? And the whole idea behind lean startup is you want to minimize the effort that maximizes learning, right? So when you start, how can I learn the quickest? Is it by go talking to potential customers or by sitting, raising money, uh, sitting heads down, developing a te- core technology and hardware software mix for two years. And then just waking up one day and understanding nobody wants what you developed, right? Uh, so we had that kind of philosophy from day one. And I, I said earlier, we had this grand idea and vision. We talked to our customers and it turns out they've been doing it for 30 years. If we had, if we never talked to them, uh, have spoken to them, you know, we would develop the wrong thing. Um, so for us, it was really in short, quick iterations, right? Uh, it's called build, measure, learn. So you build something very small, you measure it, and then you learn from it, and then you go back to building the next version. Um, so we took that approach, including with hardware, which makes it a bit more challenging. Um, we took that approach and then figured out where kind of the market is going and what our positioning is in the market. You just touched upon, you know, the other point that I wanted to uh, talk about, not to use the statement that's been used a thousand million times, but uh, hardware is hard. <laughs> and if you get hardware wrong, talk about being in a tough position, costly mm-hmm. position, software, you can just update. So, so um, you know, what, what advice would you give to founders that are, you know, trying to build, you know, a, an actual you know, physical device or, or piece of hardware? So we, we definitely got things wrong in the hardware. Um, and we had to do kind of full RMA to all the devices uh, in the market. We made those mistakes when we had 12 devices in the market. And then when we had 50, not when we had 50,000, right? So taking that same iterative approach and asking yourself, what do I need to prove now? And then what do I need to develop to kind of validate or, or disprove that assumption that I have? And then when you make mistakes, there are smaller and you can fix them and you have more control. Um, and uh, another part, which goes more to kind of our, our core values of kind of people first, you need to remember that at the end of the day, it's not about hardware or software. It's about solving people's challenges and providing value. And as long as you have that mindset, then people will be very forgiving for mistakes you make along the way. As long as you're honest and, and, uh, and sincere enough to come up and say, look, we just made this mistake. I will need to replace all the, all of the hardware um, for your company, right? And we will do it at, at no cost because it's our bad. 
And you had like the, I think the presentation you gave was about uh, the lean startup movement as it relates to hardware. And, um, you know, I, I, you talked about the first iteration of your product. It should have like wires hanging all over the place and it should like not look polished at all. Yeah. So not, to, not to pick on the poor Juicero, but that seems to be, you know, the, you know, the, the poster child of getting hardware wrong and not meeting a, 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 a consumer issue that, you know, that, exactly. that machine was incredibly expensive. Exactly. And then you see it, it really depends because the market goes in waves, right? But when it's easier to get investments, you see people investing more money and making more mistakes where they shouldn't. Um, we had the fortune or not uh, of starting when the market wasn't as frothy as it is today. And, and we decided that before we bring any external investor, we really want to prove that the, the technology works and that there is a market for it. So Gal, my co-founder and I spent two years self-funded, just the two of us. Um, because we were both engineers, we did everything from the hardware prototype to the algorithms and connectivity, as well as the business development and customer development to really prove that there's a need out there. And when did you raise your first round of capital? So when we got to a better contract with a Fortune 100 company, we then went out and raised our first round. It was uh, mid-2014. Okay. Uh, we raised from uh, First Brand Capital and, and Lara Hippo Ventures. Uh, both of them here are in New York. And they've been amazing partners of ours to, in helping us grow the team and, and build the product. And what was the fundraising process like? Uh, obviously, you, you know, secured investment from two you know, blue chip VC firms. But you know, sometimes, you know, even though you've done two years of uh, you know, building a product, market research, customers actually using it you know sometimes it can be still be tough when there's you know an actual physical piece of hardware involved that vcs might be a little you know hesitant so what was the fundraising process for a company like yeah. so it, it definitely for, for us it was kind of three times as hard because we had hardware which was today it's okay back then it was really frowned upon really I, you can't imagine how much um we were in the sexiest market out there building maintenance. Um, no one wanted to look into it. And the third is it's an enterprise sales company, which means that the sales cycles are a year long, right? So even to prove that there is something there would take a year and a half just on the sales cycle alone, right? Um, what we did, even though we, we planned to take the first couple of years self-funded, we started talking to VCs on the first week. And the reason we did it is because they are very smart people, almost all of them. Um, and they're, they have a lot of experience in what does work, what doesn't work in business models, why companies fail. And they're also willing to give you a free hour of consultancy, right? So we talked to everyone we could, not to raise money, but to share and, and see what questions they ask and learn from that, what questions should we ask ourselves when we build the business, right? Um, so, so that's the path we took and early on, you know, back in, it was 2011, 2012, we, we started saying we want to be the mechanical diagnostics layer of, of the IOT, right? The internet of things. And people asked us, why would I ever want to connect my washing machine to the internet? Right? Why would nobody would ever connect a power plant to the internet? Are you crazy? And, and that was our challenge back then, Right. Uh, over time, it became more of a thing, and, and we could latch on to 
different waves and, and, and kind of buzz terms that are, are guiding the VC industry. Now, you brought up an interesting point that I think a lot of entrepreneurs probably don't even think about. Um, so you were developing these relationships with the VCs early on when it was time to raise capital. They obviously knew what you were doing and you had proof points and they, you know, it was a relationship already versus, hey, we're already and we're ready to raise our seed or series A round. Let's go. Right. Correct. That's 100 percent correct. And def, I mean, there's a, a VC I respect called Mark Suster out of the West Coast. He has a blog and he there's one blog post I really recommend that says that, you know, he invests in lines, not in points. When you come in with a pitch deck, it's a point in time, right? If you come back after a year, he can say, what did they told, what, what, what did they say they were going to do and what did they actually achieve, right? And then he can start looking at the trend and the team, right? And the, and the, the execution. Um, and I really believe that, right? You want as, multi, as many touch points as possible, assuming that you're going to do well. And even if you don't do well, if you have good answers, that's also okay. Now your company is split, you know, so there's uh, operations in New York as well as operations back in Israel. So, so how are you able to keep like a cohesive unit all working towards the same common mission and goal? That's a really good question. And I, I, I kind of go back to culture all the time, right? Because for us, it's really a kind of a pillar of how we do things. Um, you want to start by having a kind of vision mission that everybody knows and are fighting towards. And then culture, which is kind of the compass or values, which are the compass that guides the culture. Um, but you can't be stricter than that, right? So at the end of the day, there are different cultures. Now, the U.S. is different than Israel. We have more sales and marketing people in, in New York than and more engineering and product in Israel. You need to allow them to kind of get their own, develop their own personality. Um, and when someone kind of steps into our New York office, they know that they are in New York and they know that they're at Augury. And when they go to Israel, they know that they're in Haifa, which is the city we're located in, and they know that they're at Augury. And that is what you need. You need a core kind of set of, of values and, and norms and behaviors that, are, that cross the ocean. So in, in New York specifically, um, like where do you think it has been the most challenging to hire people? Like what functional areas? So here we have mo mostly, the, again, the sales, marketing, product marketing, uh, customer operations. Um, so luckily for us, the challenges of hiring engineers in New York, we have different challenges in Israel, but um, it's a bit easier there uh, than what you have here. Um, on the sales side, for us, the challenge is that we are more unique. We want our salespeople uh, to come from the market and under really understand the customers, their pain points, and also the, their language. Um, and for us, that is the, the, the challenge, right? People that, finding people that on one hand kind of build their, their career in the industrial world, but are also savvy enough in the modern sales kind of uh, sales stack using technology, the modern sales techniques to, to be more efficient, uh, selling SaaS versus hardware and software. Um, so that, that is our challenge to find these kind of unicorns uh, that bridge both worlds. And I assume you are hiring for the New York office. I mean, I assume you're hiring for both offices, but New York specifically. C correct. So we raised our Series C round in January, a couple of months ago. 
Um, and now we're doubling down. So we, we plan to double the size of the team in, in the next year or so. Um, so yes, we're growing quite rapidly. So just kind of shifting gears a bit, but still kind of in your world. I know, you know you're focused on dealing with, you know, large companies. Uh, but what's the consumer market like right now? Like as a homeowner, I, you know, you always hear the lifespan of a hot water heater is about 10 years. So then you have like someone come over to do like a, you know, just a quality home evaluation of your, you know, your heating and all the different elements. And, you know, so the, the technician will say, Oh, your um, hot water heater is about 10 years old. Um, you might want to think about replacing it. <laughs> you don't know that you're going to get 15 years out of it or, you know, and you want to obviously be, you know, ahead of the cycle versus your, yeah. flooding, your basement's flooded, especially when it's finished. So anyway, so what's the, future like i see your product being amazing for you know uh, you talked about cars earlier right so all these different use cases for consumers is there a market that's coming for that do you think there, there is or there will be um you know i, I started at the top and said our, our kind of vision is to build a world where people can rely on the machines that matter right and we, we started in the commercial facility market hospitals universities uh, data centers, we then moved to utilities, power plants, wastewater, and whatnot. Now we're focused on manufacturing um, with the goal of eventually being inside everything that has moving parts, right? Uh, so it could be your uh, heater or washing machine or refrigerator or car or airplane or whatnot. Um, so that is kind of the mission, the path we're on. The question is, when will the consumer market be ready to pay more, right? And putting differently, should the, should the consumer pay more or is this more of, um, um, does this provide more value to the OEM itself, right? So you could argue, and, and we have this in, in our market, working with a large pump manufacturers, compressor manufacturers, that if they have a connected solution, right? Connected washing machine, and they are proactive, right? If, they, if you get a call Monday morning, from your washing machine OEM, right, company, Samsung, whatever. And they say, look, we see the bearing is a bit off. We're going to send a technician on Thursday. Uh, will you be available? That brand connection is much stronger. Right? Uh-huh. And even though they may lost because they prolonged the life of the equipment, they may kind of uh, delayed the next revenue uh, by buying, buying a new washing machine, but they strengthened the brand. And then the next washing machine will also be uh, Samsung in this case. Now, another thing that it enables is moving to selling more recurring revenues, recurring services, sorry, um, as well for them. So moving from selling one-time equipment purchase to ongoing services. Uh, and it's definitely kind of a, a path that the whole market is going through. Uh, from software that we've seen in the early 2000s and now in our market as well, we're seeing equipment as a service pump manufacturers wanting to sell water, charge per gallon of water that you pump. Now, I've heard your company described as Shazam for, for machines. Uh, so I'm going to ask, because I have you know a, a brilliant founder who has a deep expertise in speech recognition, um, how does Shazam work, the actual consumer app that, well, I think Apple bought it, but like I've always mm-hmm. been fascinated. Like, how does, how can I just hit, you know, tap on it and three seconds it knows what that song is yeah so uh, w- without uh, giving away any trade secrets over there 
because um, it's Apple now. Um, but uh, no, it's very basic and it's true to all every kind of AI. It's all about the data that you have, the data set. Um, now, what they did, they over time, they've built a da- database of all the songs out there, right? And they've built a, a, a technique to onboard new, new sound clips, right? Very, very quickly and effortlessly. Um, the way it actually works, it, it, it takes an, an audio wave, right? And it transforms it to what is called the frequency domain, right? So when you look at, let's see, the, the sound of your, of your voice when you speak, right? You have the pitch, right? So if you, you say that someone kind of talks at a higher pitch or lower pitch, right? You can actually detect that using different algorithms of sorts. So they look at the song, they look at the pitch, they look at all the different um, kind of the, the beats, right, of the, of the music. And through that, they can detect kind of, they create a fingerprint for every song and they can easily detect it um, kind of in real time. It's fascinating. Like that, I mean, it just, that was always like, I think that was like one of the first, um, you know, apps that people were like, you got to check this out. Like this thing is magic. It truly is magic. They they call the the name really kind of Mm -hmm. speaks to the feeling of, of when it works. Right. Yeah. So what do you like to do outside of work? I used to have a lot of hobbies. Now I have three kids. <laughs> and, you know, I, I travel a lot uh, for work and every time, every moment I can spend uh, at home um, is, is great. Uh, we go on trips, hiking. This is past weekend we went out uh, hiking in the Delaware Gap. So uh, just spending time with the kids and the family. That's great. Well, Sarah, thanks so much for taking the time for walking us through your background and obviously all the great things your company's up to. And, you know, as you, as you noted, you know, Augury is hiring, so you can go to their careers page to check out their job openings. But uh, thanks again for your time. I appreciate it. Perfect. Thank you. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.